Appreciate you singing with us, kids. A good big help. The rest of us can uh, take our Bibles. We'll be looking at two passages tonight. Uh, one we're going to return to in Isaiah chapter 2. And then we'll also be looking at Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. And remember, we're essentially trying to understand from Isaiah what we can expect or what the end times is all about. So we're the final sort of uh, discussion and relationship to that tonight. Previously, previous messages, we essentially saw that Isaiah was unpacking uh, for our information uh, the Abrahamic covenant, that through Abraham the whole world would be blessed. And uh, we actually looked at uh, the passage we'll be looking at uh, tonight. Uh, then and and then we uh, looked to see how that would occur from Isaiah's perspective uh, in the end times. And then we looked at, uh, secondly, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, and that bilateral agreement, and uh, how Isaiah saw that that wasn't going to work well, because man's nature is just that bad, just that stubbornly corrupt and that there would need to be a unilateral work of God. The Mosaic Covenant would not help us eschatologically or in the end times. It would need to be uh, a miraculous work. And then we looked at how Isaiah unpacked the Davidic Covenant, that really the hope of the world is a person. It is the one who comes from the loins of David, a very unique man. And tonight, uh, we're going to focus uh, in relationship to the question when we think of the judgment side of the end times. We've dealt a lot with the blessing side. We have argued or we have indicated that our understanding of the end times is really a, a two-sided coin between blessing and judgment. And we saw judgment as a very uh, necessary component of even blessing, that uh, the, the violence of mankind's sin and corruption and all of the victims that it creates, uh, the hearts of those victims yearn for uh, holy violence to be done upon all of those unjust perpetrators. And so we were trying to answer the question, well, why more violence, God? Why are you going to author more violence? And we saw that uh, it, it's necessary. Uh, it's necessary for the hope of those victims. It's necessary for uh, to be the counter violence. It's necessary for the church who understands that there is no vindication. Uh, they, they understand that there is just going to be growth uh, in this dispensation. There's not going to be vindication. Uh, Jesus is going to have to take care of that. He's going to counter all of the inequities. Uh, so in the end times, you know, Jesus has a corner on the market of violence. And we recognize that it was very different, though. It's a different kind of violence. 
Remember we read how patient he's been and how often he's stayed his hand and how he loves and he longs. But there is coming a day when the cup of God's wrath, which is filling up, will pour out upon all this earth. And Isaiah indicates that. But we're thankful. We were, we were encouraged and we took hope that ultimately the understanding of the end times is not apocalyptic for the believer. It's an age of great hope for the believer. Certainly judgments will be required, and we're going to take a look at that a little bit more in detail today. Uh, they will be required, but for the believer, uh, those things are as difficult as they are. They're passing on their way to the fulfillment of what we long for. Things that are familiar to us, justice, love, rightness, vindication, all those things that we feel at times and we all long for uh, will one day be in fact our experience and our reality. And we will be in the majority position because King Jesus will rule and reign. Uh, did you notice Pastor Tim's prayer this morning? I was delighted by that, that the, we as pastors minister among the future rulers of the world. That's you. Uh, you are the majestic ones in all the earth according to Psalm 16, and God takes great delight in you. So, so we're going to take a look at that uh, tonight. Um, the idea of what does Isaiah's treatment of the end times teach us in relationship to these judgments, all of these judgments that come to us. So as we've mentioned, Isaiah's contribution of our understanding of the end times includes both unprecedented blessings as well as unprecedented judgment. We come to know God more closely, I would argue, as we mine out, the Old Test out of the Old Testament what God says is true of his likes and dislikes as a result of obedience and disobedience. And we see that interplay in the nation of Israel. What we want to be careful of as the church, we want to focus on what God says is true of his likes and dislikes. What we want to be careful of is what he does about that is often dictated by a prearranged agreement he has made with the nation of Israel. So if I could give us a bit of an interpretive grid for understanding what we can carry forward into the church age, the New Testament era, when we look at the Old Testament and the prophecies, the written prophets, we want to focus in on what God says about what he likes and dislikes. But we want to be careful about what he does about that. Shake your head if you're seeing what I'm trying to say. Okay, good. You all kind of look like, what is he saying? Yes, words mean something here. So it's the difference between saying and doing. Okay, and just by a simple illustration in terms of, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, I draw a simple uh, analogy between you as a child when you were not an adult underneath your parents' rules and regulations, and then as you are a an adult child trying to honor your parents. Um, when you were a little child, there were, there were prearranged agreements that would be followed through on if you 
failed to like what your parents liked, uh, or you disliked what they liked, and you, you, you grew to understand what those likes and dislikes were because they would do something about that. But that obviously changed. You, you, that, that those prearranged agreements changed when you grew to be an adult and you became a family yourself. And your goal was to honor your mom and dad. And those prearranged uh, doings were no longer really in force, per se. But that didn't necessarily change what your mom and dads are liked or disliked. You still knew those very well. And they pretty much were consistent. You know, if they didn't like certain kind of clothing when you were under their roof, they probably still won't like it when you're out from underneath their, their roof. But obviously, there's not much they're going to do about that. And their hope is ultimately, and I'm not saying we, we necessarily have to arrange the way we dress according to our parents. That's not what we're saying. As adult people, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just helping you understand the little difference. So in the church, we have a, we have a very um, wonderful ability to worship the Lord. And this is really the essence of worship. It's the essence of making not just the proclamation of my love, not just the, the embracing of what we call positional truth and glorying in the gospel. Uh, that, that certainly is an aspect of worship. But I would, I would suggest tonight that the genius of worship is beyond that. It's learning to not just proclaim love and appreciate the amazing positional truth, but it's to learn to like what God likes. Learn to adjust relationally what you enjoy, what you delight in. Um, you know, nobody delights in broccoli. At least not sane people. The reality is, broccoli is very good for you. And if you can learn to delight in broccoli, you will enjoy a level of excellence in your life, by way of analogy. So as we handle uh, tonight, we want to look at that. So God is the analogous one to the parents from our illustration. He is absolutely holy, and his likes and dislikes will always lead to the destination of Christ-like character. Those who learn to know those likes and dislikes by seeking to know God will enjoy a progressive growing experience of excellence in their lives. There are several things about God's likes and dislikes that become clear from Isaiah's prophecies concerning the end times in relationship to the judgments that are all throughout his writing. And one thing is very clear, that God does not like the arrogant, proud heart of man wherever he finds it. First of all tonight, we want to see that God does not like the arrogant heart of man in his own people. You have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 2. 
we see from chapter 2, verse 11, that an arrogant attitude is the precondition of the judgment that faces Judah. There Isaiah writes, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The arrogant attitude. Well, what did it produce in the nation of Israel? Well, we see here that it produced many things as we study all of the judgments, but two in particular that we want to note tonight here from Isaiah chapter 2. The first thing that we see that the arrogant attitude or the arrogant heart of the people of God, the nation of Israel, produced an attempted combining of true worship for God with what all of their buddies were doing around them in the other nations. There's a big word for that. And that word is this. It's called syncretism. This arrogant spirit, this, this sort of attitude is what turned the toes of the nation of Israel and pointed them in a little different direction, even though for a time being their face was still facing true worship. But eventually, because their toes were pointed in that direction, their whole body moved there. And we see that in, uh, in verse number uh, 5 and 6. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For Jehovah, you have abandoned your people. So here's the light. Here's the light of the Lord. And the fact of the matter is Jehovah's abandoned his people, the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are filled with influences from the east. We had mentioned this in our first, pass in our first time together. But although they were the house of the Lord, although they were... Uh, um, they had the a unique opportunity to walk in the light of the Lord. Their toes were pointed or were drawn by influences from the men from the east. And they began to seek to try to have their cake and eat it too. God does not like the arrogant heart of man. The attitude of a man when it becomes proud. And that pride causes those toes to begin to point in other directions. Well, why can't I have that? Why can't I go there? Why can't I look that way? Why can't I act that way? Why can't I just do what I want? And we begin to point our toes all the while. And if this is true of the people of God under the covenant community, it was, and we have some very clear understanding of how it is in fact they turned their toes to the influences from the east. This text in fact tells us where it influenced them among other places. It, um, 
it, 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 uh, it soothsayers, you know, for them, it was very, they, they wanted to know the secrets, the, 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 what was going on in the world, kind of sort of stay on the in and continue to sort of be relevant. So they looked to the soothsayers, they looked to the vocal mouthpieces of the cultures of the pagan countries around them, and they were relevant, and they were cool. And as a result, they were rich. Yeah, they had lots of money. Their land was filled with silver and gold, and there was no end to their treasures. Their land also was filled with horses, and there were no end of chariots. But guess what else their land was full of? Verse number 8. Their land was filled with idols. Filled with idols. They worshipped the work of their hands. That, it, it, the idea here is this is absolutely ridiculous. This, this is, remember, God created man to be his vice regent on earth. To be his assistant his associate. And he was to have dominion over everything in behalf of the creator God. <laughs> and the indignity of man created in God's image paganizing to the point where he worships what his own fingers have made from heaven's standpoint is ridiculous beyond words. The angels are like, what is going on? And then look what happens. Verse 9, the dignity of man, he's absolutely humbled. He becomes very pagan. He becomes dark. He becomes like that to which he is making in worship. He, uh, the important man, and, and these humbling and abasing are not good terms here. This is the image likeness of God and man has become so twisted, you know, that he saves baby whales and he kills human children. That's what happens out, out within this arena. Now, I know we're not... You know, we're not dragging the covenant community as America. That's not what I'm talking about. That's just simply by way of illustration. But the church has a part to play. We've got to be careful that our toes aren't synchristically pointed into the world. That we're pursuing, that, 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 the, that the judge and jury of why we do what we do is, well, I like it. And let me tell you, folks, it's the arts. Mark it down. And those of you who are in the arts, we've got wonderful people who are all in the arts. They're wonderful. But I'm telling you, the arts are tricky. In the liberal arts, there's several disciplines. We start with, you know, on the high end, mathematics. We say mathematics is highly, highly influenced by common grace. 
You know, mathematicians don't discuss mathematic theory. They, they try to discover it. You know, they, they don't discuss if two plus two can equal one. They, they don't do that as, as sort of a personal expression of their creative ability. I mean, they can try that, but bridges will fall down, right? Uh, rockets won't go up into the air. So that's very high on the liberal arts disciplines. At the, at, and high in the sense, well, we could put it high in the sense of being affected by common grace, but very low on the sense of providing uh, a conduit through which we can worship. Although we can, you know, we can teach mathematics and say, isn't God wonderful because he's made the universe in a very orderly fashion? We can say that, right? But moving down in terms of common grace, the arts are the least affected by common grace. Art, by its very definition, is an individual's uh, uh, creative expression. And so it's very tricky. So what's required of the Christian artist is somebody who applies himself to this whole a lifelong process of trying to figure out what God likes and what God loves and to express that. The moral, it's still morally accountable to God. In every generation, the Christian musicians have to do that. There's one in particular who did that quite well. From what I understand, I believe he was a believer. Tried to do that. I think he, you know, to the glory of God is what he signed a lot of what he wrote. And that was Bach, who stands as sort of a standard in that regard. The man who tried to do that. Um, so syncretism. We've got to be careful with that. The arrogance of the heart of man, the attitude, can tend to turn our toes. When we, when we instead of uh, uh, starting with, well, what delights the Lord? And that's really uh, uh, what we want to apply in relationship as the counterbalance to the syncretism and the idolatry that stands on the shoulders of the arrogance, the proud look, the proud-hearted man, the intellectual pride that he might have, his loftiness. Humility comes when he begins to replace that arrogance with delighting in the Lord, delighting in the Lord. And we see this theme frequently in Isaiah's prophecy. Two times... A, a, a verse is repeated very closely in the book of Isaiah, and it's toward the end. Isaiah 65, 12. I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter, because I called, and you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Did not delight. Well, God, how do we know everything you delight? Well, you, you have the opportunity to know me. You know, I, I would say marriage is, is the process of growing and understanding what your spouse likes and dislikes. You know, young love, I think I may have said this, after a year of marriage, wakes up and realizes some, there's just some things that he or she does that I just flat out don't like. 
You know, we still may profess our love, confess our love, and everybody's grateful for that. You know, we're not going to get divorced or anything, but doggone it, I just don't like what this is. You know, he snores, and we talked about that a lot of things and all these things. And so the rest of your life is trying to shape each other's likes and dislikes, and this is the genius of being married. It's, it's the pursuit of oneness. God has given the Christian marriage uh, a, a high capacity to enjoy and discover that oneness together. And it takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. But it's the same exercise that we're doing as worshipers, learners, lovers, worshipers. This is the genius of worship. It's the pursuing of oneness with the God of heaven, who, by the way, minimally is together for the gospel. Primarily, the Trinity is together for the glory of God. In every aspect of the life of his children. You like it when your kids come up to you and say, Dad, you were right. I should have liked what you liked, and I wouldn't have had the trouble I had. That, my friend, is amazing, isn't it? When it happens, it's like blow you away amazing. And we have the joy. We are the only creatures with the capacity, other than the angelic host, although they do it from a different perspective, to look up to the God of heaven and say, God, you are right. I should have learned to have liked what you liked, not just merely confess my love for you. So syncretism, arrogance, arrogance. The second thing, not only does God um, Distest, dislike the arrogance in the heart of his own people because it sows the seed of syncretism and idolatry. He doesn't even like it in the instruments of those that he uses to bring judgment and wrath on those of his own people. Turn to Isaiah chapter 10. You know, we, we think, okay, if God's call, you know, God calls Assyria here to be the rod of his anger on, the, on, on Judah, and, and to, you know, uh, they're, they're not going to really be successful. They certainly were on Israel, the northern kingdom. But in verse 5, he says, uh, uh, Woe to Israel, or woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. You know, and I could just see Assyria saying, Well, yeah, Lord, you're the one who wanted us to thump them. You know what? You know. But, but here, it's the same issue. He says in verse 12, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart even in the life of the nation that was called to be the rod of God's anger. Down to verse 33. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down. And he's speaking of the Assyrians. And those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe. He punishes the fruit of the arrogant heart wherever he finds it. Wherever he finds it. 
Verse 27, it says, in this day, so it will be in that day. There's a future eschatological time of severe judgment by, in the same way that God will punish the arrogant heart wherever he finds it. Thirdly, from chapters 13 to 24, we have sort of a, a who's who of, of the historic nations that were around during Isaiah's day. In chapter 13, verse 11, I want you to turn there, and with this we'll close here. As we're about ready to kind of roll out the judgments that will descend upon each one of these historic nations. The fundamental cause is this. Verse 11. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. Unless we think it's just the, you know, the historic nations, the poor little earth gets beat up. <laughs> you know, those of us, those of you who are conservationists, for chapter 24, verse 5, the earth gets judged because the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. They transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. And we could argue from Isaiah 13 that it was the function of the arrogance of the proud. The arrogance of the proud. You know, pastors often taught us that compromise within a local New Testament church begins with an attitude. And I, and I think in the study of Isaiah, of my study of Isaiah, that that is profoundly supported. And we can identify from God's perspective that that attitude is a proud, arrogant attitude. And it's that attitude that begins to sow the seeds of eventual compromise. Those of you who are disciplers, be wary of the attitude of your disciplees. On the back of our disciple-making pathway, a true believer is described as first and foremost a what? A learner. It shouldn't be hard. They should humbly, joyfully want to learn. And then they become lovers as they learn. They learn by God's grace and the power of Jesus Christ to sacrifice their own self-interests. Remember, that's love in the New Testament church. It is the antithesis of proud, arrogant hearts. It's disciplining ourselves to constantly be trying to put that at bay and put it away. And then a worshiper. We can only become true worshipers when we get rid of our own self-interest. We take the grip 
not only in our confessions of love, but all the way down into our affections, where I recognize that just because I like something, that's not the judge and jury. Now, truly, what I like may be what God likes, but it's only when I truly understand progressively that there is a, there is a coherence between those two things then that I can joyfully run forward with what I like. But until then, I'm cautious. I'm cautious. I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. That's what I do. And that's what I think, I believe, Isaiah is saying. So attitude is a watershed. You know what a watershed is? Rain falls on this side, goes to the Atlantic. This side, I guess it goes to the Mississippi River and out the Gulf, right? At least on our little seaboard area. There's only two points. Attitude is a watershed. Mark it down. Not only watch it, disciples in your own, in your disciples, but in your own life as well. You know when you kind of begin to cop a spirit, you begin to kind of get a little, get a little burr up into your saddle. Folks, Satan will energize that like nothing else. The profound reality, and I can't get over this, the profound reality is that the whole of the eschatological judgments, as devastating as they are required to be, is due fundamentally because you and I have an arrogant heart. There will be bold judgments, I'm sorry, seal judgments, bold judgments, trumpet judgments, fundamentally, because we are arrogant and proud. For God's people causes us to mix. We love the world. We love, we love, you know, we take some of our cues from them and, and we can do it unwittingly. We've got to be careful. You know, we've got to be careful and cautious. It's okay to be careful and go slow. That's good. It's okay. It's okay. So an attitude of arrogance tonight is the fountainhead of God's eschatological judgments. Never forget that. You can never overestimate the danger of a proud, arrogant heart. Never. Okay? All right. Very good. I think we are dismissed. Do we have a slide? To, to, to Pastor Steve's going to come on up. And uh, smile, by the way. I know that was a little harder thing to hear, but it's a good thing to hear. Let's just knock that out, and we'll enjoy pursuing holiness. Remember, we pursue perfection, and along the way, we enjoy excellence. And it's in the likes and dislikes. And we want those, to train those more and more uh, to what God's likes and dislikes are.